Well, it's been a joy going through this series called Jesus And, looking at all the various challenging circumstances that we face in today's cultural moment, and looking at how we can follow Jesus through them. We have just two more weeks after this. Next week, Pastor Ash will be speaking on Jesus and gratitude on Thanksgiving weekend. And then the weekend after, we have a very special guest with us, Bethany Allen from Bridgetown Church, Portland, coming to be with us and speak on Jesus and singleness. This week is, therefore, my last opportunity to speak into this series. And therefore, what I want to do is wrap up a few areas where I know God is calling us into to follow Him in multiple ways that don't quite represent one whole sermon that we can't do, otherwise we'll be in this series for the next 10 years. So, but over the last two years, we have been through a season of stress, and stress brings out the true nature of things. Stress is the great litmus test of reality. It's our diagnostic in how we are doing. I remember about five years ago, I went to the doctor over in Cedar sinai to get a checkup on my heart. And the way that they checked up on my heart was to almost kill me through a stress test. And I'm not too sure this was the ideal solution. But I was there running on a treadmill with all of these things, wires plugged into me. And they kept getting faster and faster and faster until I was hanging on for dear life and almost vomited everywhere of exhaustion. They stopped, and as I recuperated, they ran all the different test results, and they came in with my diagnostic. We didn't kill you, but here is how you really are doing. We understand how we're doing in moments of stress. The true nature of who you are comes out. The true nature of the church comes out. The true nature of the Church of America comes out under stress. And the last two years, we've been under stress. And God doesn't bring evil into the world, but He will use it as a stress test for His church. A stress test for you and for me to show us how we're really doing. Not in any way to shame us, but to invite us to grow into health. The last two years have been a stress test that I call CPR, COVID, political turmoil, racial tension. I borrowed that off a friend of mine, CPR. That's been our stress test the last three years, a perfect storm of things that escalated. They weren't new. COVID was, but others weren't but they all coalesced into a significant storm for our culture, for the church, and for you and for me. And it's through these seasons of stress, it's through CPR, that I believe Jesus has spoken to His church, held up a mirror to us, honored us in ways that we represent Him, but also is calling us out in ways that we don't. Again, not out of chiding or disappointment, but out of love to grow us into His image. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, pain insists upon being attended to, and God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. 
It is his megachurch. Megaphone. Not megachurch. It is his megaphone. Freudian slip there. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And CPR, in many ways, has been his diagnostic tool for us as a church because he wants to grow us. And he will use the trials, the tensions, and the traumas of life to grow us. Again, he's not the author of evil, but he will overrule evil to work good in our lives. That's why in John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That sounds painful. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, even more painful, so that it will be even more fruitful. So I want to end my contribution to this series, Jesus And, by looking at the ways that I believe Jesus is showing us areas to grow, showing us areas where he's calling us out of immaturity into maturity in Christ. I don't know if you had a pen and paper right now and wrote down, what areas of the last years has God shown me that I need to grow? And if Jesus was writing a letter to our church, like one of the letters in Revelation where Jesus writes to his churches, what would he say? I want to give us six areas that I believe through CPR, the great physician of the soul, Jesus Christ, has come in with the results to say that these are areas I'm calling my church to maturity. I'm calling my church to grow for the sake of the world, for the sake of our life together, and for the sake of giving glory to Jesus. The first is this. We have a maturity gap in a gospel worldview in a gospel worldview. CPR has shown us that much of the church doesn't understand or is not rooted in the foundations of the gospel, foundations in the story of God, the foundations of what Jesus is doing in the world. In Mark chapter 8, there's this great and amazing story between Jesus and one of his disciples called Peter. And it goes like this, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but the concerns of man, merely human concerns. Jesus was describing, this is what my agenda is. This is the story of why I came. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. We're going to actually see the kingdom of God come through this way. But this didn't fit the worldview of Peter. This didn't fit what Peter wanted Jesus to be for him. And so we have this absurd, this amazing scene of Peter saying to Jesus, I rebuke you. Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. What are you talking about? Get in line. What do you think you're doing? We've got this great plan for you, Jesus. We've got this great plan for what we want you to do. 
The last thing I want you to do is that. This amazing scene of Peter turning to Jesus saying, I don't want what you have. You're supposed to come and give me what we want. I don't want to follow you to death. I don't want to. That sounds way too hard. You should be doing what we want to do. This is awesome. Get with the picture, Jesus. That there was a, a misunderstanding of the whole purpose of what Jesus had come to do. There was a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was. That Peter was obsessed with project self. This is what I want Jesus to do for me. That he rebuked Jesus when Jesus called him to follow him. And I've seen over the last two years, many people rebuke Jesus. In the midst of all the trials and tensions, the changes of plan, the disruptions in worship, the disruptions in church, the disruptions in society. That suddenly Jesus isn't working out the way that we thought he would. That we had a picture of what we wanted Jesus to do and to be. We had a picture of why Jesus came, which was for me. We had a picture of what he was supposed to do in the future. We had a picture of what he was supposed to do for my career or for my political party or for my economic theory or etc. etc. We had a picture of what we thought Jesus was supposed to do and didn't look like he's doing it. We have a gap in what Jesus is all about versus we want, we want Jesus to be all about. I had an aha moment around this a couple of weeks ago. I went with my son on a wilderness trip out to the middle of the desert around the Grand Canyon, and we were some other dads and sons, and we had an amazing time, and we slept in the wilderness uh, for three nights, and around every campfire at night and campfire in the morning over breakfast, one of the dads would lead a devotional around the five truths of maturity in Jesus. The five truths of what it means to grow out of immaturity to maturity in our faith with Jesus Christ. And I was listening to these five truths. On one hand, I was saying to myself, absolutely, these are just foundational Jesus truths of what it means to follow him. On the other hand, I was going, holy smokes, these are so controversial. And there was a tension around the campfire going, ooh, these sound tough. And yet, I couldn't help but think, they're tough, but they're basic. Oh, no. We are so far, we, we are so uncomfortable with the basics of following Jesus and what he wants us to do. These truths were originally captured by a man called Richard Raw in his book, Raising Adam, and recently popularized again through John Tyson's book, Intentional Father. And I w don't put them up yet, David, but when I put them up, we're going to read them together, not out loud, but I'll read them out. And I wonder what your reactions are going to be. So David, put them on the screen. These are five truths of maturity in Jesus Christ. Number one, life is hard. Number two, you are not that important. Number three, your life is not about you. Number four, you are not in control. Number five, you are going to die. Now, most of the reaction is, wow, don't like them. And yet, they're on every page, every page of Jesus' teachings. 
That life is the life of the cross, surrendering our own will for the sake of His. Paul said, I've worked harder than all of you for the sake of the kingdom. I've been flogged, I've been shipwrecked, I've I've almost been tortured to death. But he said, but all for the glory of Jesus. Life's hard. Secondly, you're not that important. In other words, you're important in in the way that we're all important. But you're not above average. Because no one is more important than the other. The sad thing is, recent statistics show that 70% of Americans believe they're above average. (laughs) And we bring that into our spirituality, right? We bring that into our spirituality. I'm special. And then we make life about ourselves. Then we make life about me. And whereas the greatest generation post-World War II was known for its sacrifice for others, every generation since has been progressively not about others but about me, the me culture. Thirdly, your life is not about you. That we've been told that we are the center of our own stories, making much about us, about my fulfillment, about my happiness, about my joy. Whereas actually you were born into a story that's not about you. It's the story of the kingdom of God, of which you have an important role. But your joy and contentment is not about finding yourself as the main actor on stage, but playing your part in making much of Jesus. As Paul put it, we're all a body, and you need to celebrate that you could be the pinky, playing its part to serve the rest of the body. Fourthly, you're not in control. Oh, my word. Suddenly, we all had an existential crisis that the last CPR told us we're not in control. And then number five, you're going to die. Something that we do everything in our culture to, A, put out of our mind by locking old people away in homes in Florida. (laughs) That's actually a problem in our society, by the way. That's just not me. Problem globally about actually we... We dishonor our elderly by moving them out of society. But equally, we, we want to do that because we don't want, to rea- we don't want the reality of getting old. And so we do everything in our city to be young. But these shape a gospel worldview of how we live. We are to live for others. We're to press into a cruciformed life. We are to live for eternal things, not temporal. These are the basics. And yet, our culture has discipled us in the opposites. Now, how did we get so far from the foundations of a Jesus worldview? Well, it's obvious, and we've been actually been talking about this in, in Christian circles for about 30 years, that we are now living the fruit of people raised in a seeker-sensitive church environment where there wasn't much discipleship. It was mostly about evangelism, a church growth movement that wanted to attract people as opposed to really grow people. Ticket to heaven, salvation. So desperate to get people saved that lowered the bar so much that it was a ticket to heaven. And therefore, just do what you want for the next 80 years. You've got your ticket. And then we swung the pendulum away from legalism 
Or some people brought up in the legalistic faith where people believe that becoming a Christian is a meritocracy of performance. We went, no, it's the gospel. And therefore, we spoke about grace so much, which is beautiful. That's a scandal. But then we started to take it to an opposite heretical view of cheap grace. Where suddenly we have the message and we hear it all through our Instagrams of Jesus loves you just the way you are. So why on earth did he come and save us? If we're okay just the way we are, why did He have to die for us? No, He loves us, but not just the way we are, because He sees the pain and the brokenness and the addictions and the, the slavery to sin that we have, and He came to rescue us and save us, and He loves us to save us from these things so much, He died Himself to do that. He said, look, I'm calling you out of something into something by grace, but follow me. Follow me. We talked about this before, that the gospel is not an invitation by grace into nothing. It's an invitation by grace into following Jesus, taking on His lifestyle, obeying Him as your King. It's the difference between a believing faith to a following faith. And Jesus, when He summarizes what it means to be a Christian, it's a following faith. Because He even says, even Satan believes in me. It's like someone saying to you, I really want to be a chef, but do I have to cook? <laughs> but that's kind of what we do with being a Christian. I really want to believe in Jesus, but do I have to do what he wants me to do? It's an oxymoron in the Christian faith. Becoming a Christian is following Jesus. And then lastly, one of the main problems now of our shallow discipleship of not knowing how to be like Jesus in the cultural traumas of this world, is what I call we're addicted to dopamine discipleship. As you know, dopamine is the chemical in the brain. Some people call it the pleasure chemical or the feel-good chemical. It's that dopamine hit that we love that when we go online and see someone likes our post, we have this little dopamine hit. Or when we see something funny on TV, a little dopamine hit. And technology and entertainment culture have actually fed us less of the mundane, and it's showing us that actually through seven-second little films, we can have constant dopamine hits. The problem is we get addicted to dopamine, and therefore everything else is mundane, boring, and we just don't do it. We're looking for the dopamine hit instead of discipleship. Psychiatrist Dr. Anna Lemke from Stanford University's Addiction Clinic, she says she's spent 25 years plus treating patients addicted to everything from heroin, gambling, sex to video games, Botox, and ice baths. And she was being interviewed in the Guardian newspaper upon the release of her new book called The Dopamine Nation. And it says in the article that she says, our smartphones are making us dopamine junkies with each swipe, like, and tweet feeding our habit. The article says she calls the smartphone the modern-day hypodermic needle. We turn to it for quick hits, seeking attention, validation, and distraction with each swipe, like, and tweet. And since the turn of the millennial, behavioral addictions have soared. Every spare second is an opportunity to be stimulated, whether by entering the TikTok vortex, scrolling Instagram, swiping through Tinder, or binging on porn, online gambling, or e-shopping. The problem with this dopamine addiction is when we then 
bring it into our relationship with God and growing in Him, we insist on dopamine discipleship, which doesn't really disciple. Dopamine discipleship, you know it well, where suddenly our main means of growing in things of Christ are Instagram seven-second little snippets of sermons that give you that, oh, that was so good. The little frame of a little Christian catchphrase where you go, oh, wow, that's so, redu- that's so reductionistic and oversimplified, but it sounds great. where we only really want to listen to celebrity pastors. And actually, celebrity pastors are a creature of our own dopamine addictions because they have a fan base, because they're the best communities in the world that we long to listen to them because we, we hear them and go, oh, that's good. Oh, that's awesome. Woo, Jesus. And then you go back to your local church and you go, oh, this is so dull. And it's why actually worship, in some ways, worship is the language of this generation. Half the time, I believe, it's because people truly long for an experience of the transcendence. But half the time is because in worship, they get the dopamine hit that they long for. I'm not too sure sometimes. Is the presence of God here or is dopamine here? Jesus tells us that genuine discipleship can't be shortcutted. It's learning his word. It's the, it's the old traditions of memorization of Scripture. Psalm 1, meditating on Scripture. Long-form community conversations around things of discipleship and doctrine. Basically, Our aversion to anything without dopamine has meant that we refuse to engage in growing in Jesus Christ. And ironically, we now live in the most enviable moment in Christian history where anybody, not even getting out of bed, can have access to the best theological training in the world for free. And we don't do it. I'm in the same boat as you. This is not judgment or shame. It's just reality. And I think the last two years have shown us the church doesn't know what it means to follow Jesus. It's confused as it what it means to follow Jesus. We're not biblically literate. When I say to people, what do you think the Bible says about that? I have no freaking clue. I don't read my Bible. Now, that's just reality. And I think Jesus is saying with love, it's time to grow. I want to give you some resources that will help kickstart your growth. The first is this. Deal with your dopamine addictions. Put in some digital boundaries in your life. The psychologist in this newspaper article recommends that everyone 
puts away your phone for a consistent period of time. She says, try 24 hours, a 24-hour period in one, over each week. Put it away. For the first 12 hours, she says, you'll be itching, scratching, wanting to check. And then the other 12 hours, you'll start to discover the freedom when dopamine starts to reduce. In other words, it's interesting, she's not a Christian, but she's tapping into what Jesus already told us and God did. It's called the Sabbath. It's actually rest from these things. Secondly, become an amateur theologian. Decide to go, you know what? I am so privileged. I don't want to go to heaven. And Jesus go, dude, I gave you access to the best theological growth opportunities in the world. What did you do? I don't want my answer to be TikTok. (laughs) Or I finish Netflix. There is a, one, of the, one of the most amazing resources online is called The Bible Project. How many of you have accessed ever The Bible Project? Great, about a third. That means two-thirds haven't, which is great. You'll have an excitement ahead of you. But this is where these guys have gone, we're going to make theology accessible to everyone. And you can type something in. They go, oh, I, I actually want to know what heaven actually is. I actually want to know what biblical justice is. I actually want to know... What this is, you can type it in and see these videos, these amazing podcasts. One person said to me recently, Gay, you keep mentioning the Bible Project, and I've been listening to their podcasts every week, and I'm blown away. I've been in church all my life. There's so much opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Two books I want to really uh, recommend just as the beginnings easy. Live No Lies, John Mark Homer, Intentional Father. John Tyson, they're just putting in place a gospel worldview into parenting and into life. Okay, number two, intentional formation. The second maturity gap is formation into Christ-likeness. Formation into Christ-likeness. The call of a Christian is to become like Jesus, not just to know about him, not just to do the things he did in power, but to become like him. In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, self-sacrifice, looking out for the interests of others above our own. These are the things that Jesus did, and he's inviting us to become a part of. In fact, that's the trajectory of you and me, that we can bring glory to Jesus in the world and live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the things that we long for. But this is the journey of formation, not information. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image. In Romans 12, Paul writes, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Paul is saying, as Jesus says, you are to grow into maturity in Christ by being like him. Not just believe the right things and actually not just be charismatic and have power to do the things of Jesus because you can have both of those things and in your character be nothing like Jesus. You can know the Bible back to cover and be mean, angry, bitter and hypocritical. You can be powerful and see the sick healed and be manipulative, greedy and narcissistic in how you operate the power of Jesus. And over the last CPR, 
The world have even told us, oh my word, whatever's happened over the last two years, the church looks pretty ugly. Not so much in what you believe, because we always disagree with, with what you believe. But you look ugly. The level of fighting, anger, rejection, revenge, persecution amongst Christians has been far from Christ-likeness. We have been conformed to the world as opposed to Jesus. See, culture disciples us. Culture transforms us. This is something I realized recently. I went to uh, Nashville, not for a house hunting trip, don't worry. I went, to, I went to, for a meeting and I was driving in a car around Nashville and I suddenly thought, oh my word, no one can drive here. Everyone's so slow, Everyone, no one's using their horn, everyone stops at stop signs. What's the deal? Where's the California roll? Where's the driving with one hand on the thing, you know? And someone said to me, dude, you are angry in your driving. You are mental. And I just realized, huh. He said to me, you are so L.A. I have been conformed to Los Angeles. And over the last two years, we've seen great tragedies of how the church has been conformed to the ethics and character of the world. Paul says, do not be conformed, but be transformed into the image of Jesus. And before COVID, we were hearing more and more people say, oh my word, we've thought transformation would come from head knowledge, or we thought transformation would come from charismatic download, but it's not happening. And then we've realized, going back to the teachings of Jesus, that transformation isn't a matter of information, and it isn't a matter of powerful download. Transformation is through formation in following the practices of Jesus. It's doing what He did. That as we engage in a whole different lifestyle, the Holy Spirit fills us that we may, from the inside out, begin to become like Him. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The winds come, the storm will come, but you won't be shaken. Because you've been formed. Doctrine is important. The power of the Holy Ghost is important. But what we've realized is we've been missing Christ-like formation through the regular rhythms and practices that form us. Practices form us. Driving in LA forms us. Going on TikTok and Instagram first thing in the morning will form you. Binging Netflix will form you. They will all shape you into a certain type of person. 
Jesus invites us into a different way of living, and through that way of living, we are formed. Practices such as the unhurried life of Sabbath, contemplative prayer, silence, solitude, generosity, embodied community, and on and on and on. These have been the practices for the church ever since the Old Testament, Jesus, the monastic communities of the 3rd and 4th century, all the way through to people like Dallas Willard and the spiritual disciplines, through John Mark Homer and the spiritual practices, because we don't like the word discipline. I think God is calling us out and calling us into a rhythm of life filled with His Holy Spirit, rested in His grace, that forms us into the people that He calls us to be. I want to give you some resources that can help kickstart your journey into formation, not just head knowledge or Holy Ghost power, but formation. The first is this, a book called Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. It's kind of like the simplest overview of the formation journey that Jesus invites us into. It's like the essential book to read. You go, oh my word, where has this been? It's like, well, actually, it was there all the way up to the 1960s, and then formation disappeared, largely, except for some people. So, invitation to a journey. John Mark Homer's got a great book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, where it presses into one area of formation, which is rest, Sabbath, and getting rid of the workaholism, which forms us into people of anxiety. And then we run here, and Ash runs it, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We run that course on a regular basis so that you can start to practice the way of Jesus, that you may be formed into His image. Okay, thirdly, biblical community. The third maturity gap that we've seen over the last two years is biblical community, that Jesus is calling us out and calling us into a healthier version of biblical community. Over CPR, and particularly being locked in our rooms during COVID, our homes, taught us that actually the myth of digital community doesn't work. That we long for incarnational embodied family. We need it more than ever before. And at the same time, we realized that we lacked this level of community. We lacked this deep, rich family that we're longing for. The Bible talks about family, not in a biological sense, but more of a clan, more of a, the household. And our family director, Sarah Remus, gave me a book this week, and I read about the biblical words for household. We're just that, over 60, 70, 80 people of parents, children, relatives, close friends, widows, orphans. They're part of a clan, one household. This is family doing life together. This is the high goal of Christian community and friendship, and yet over the last two years we've realized, oh, we just don't have that. I was, um, and yet we long for it, and I was on my exercise bike, this thing called the Peloton yesterday, and doing one of my, uh, I don't do it often, but doing it with my, fam- my favorite teacher, a guy called Ben Aldous. Anybody done any Ben Aldous on Peloton? 
No, two. Yes, I see. Yes, thank you. Don't leave me hanging. He's the best out there because he's, he's my alter ego. I want to be Ben Aldis because he's obviously super fit and healthy, but he also does my kind of secret professional dream I have, which is he's an EDM DJ in nightclubs in London. And I would love, that's my alter ego. And so, and so I watch Ben, I'm with you Ben, and um, we're crushing all the EDM tracks of ministry and sound and things like that. And then, um, and, but then, shockingly, he said about yeah, 15 minutes into it. He went, Peloton community, I so love you. This is the best community in the world. We're, we are for each other. We're encouraging each other. There's no better place. There's no other community as rich and deep as the Peloton community. I was going, this is rubbish. <laughs> this screen, this is the best that we have to offer. People by themselves in their living rooms. Only the only thing we can do to kind of um, interact is a little high five button when someone passes me, a little high five. <laughs> and then some of them reply, some don't. Because this is community. This is awful. And Ben's going, there's no place like it. This is amazing. I'm going, we're all in our own, on our own, in a digital anonymous environment where this is the longing of our heart, but this is the best we've got. Little moments in the digital sphere or in a, in a Pilates class. Oh, it's so well unified. And then we go and never even know each other ever again. I thought, you know what? I'm going to push into this community on Peloton. I'm going to push in. And so I went on Instagram and found Ben's uh, IG handle. And I did a little story. Woo, Ministry of Sound with Ben Aldis. Woo, woo. I guess what he replied. He did a little hands, what's that little high, you know, hands raised little logo? I went, we're besties, I'm besties with Ben Aldis. See, intimacy. <laughs> we long for it, but the world doesn't know how to do it. But Jesus does. Because he calls us into this deeper level of covenant community, of people of all ages, all ethnicities, all socioeconomics and binds us together in Jesus Christ and brings us one and then gives us the toolkit to stay together because he gives us the toolkit of grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, humility because this is the operating system of following Jesus and this is what we need to stay together. But the last two years we've seen these things not on display and all we've done is reject each other and stay in our silos, peddling away in our digital anonymous communities. Jesus is calling us into the covenant family, calling us into commitment and covenant, learning how to love each other even when we disagree, how to commit to each other even when I've been stupid and not responded or said something. No, we look at our hearts. We resolve conflict. When we don't actually say, you know, we're going to we're going to reduce our community to life stage people. I just want to be with people just like me. I want to be with left-handed Brits. That's what I want to be. Find a community group just like me. The whole community group and community of God is an oikos. It's a family of diversity, of beautiful. There are singles. There are older people. There are married couples. That no one is left out of family. This is the call of the Christian community. God is calling us into being one family. Fourthly, 
I'm going to end here. There's been a maturity gap in what we worship, particularly political idolatry. Political idolatry. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to India in the, from 1930s to about 1970 before he returned to England. And he commented that as he saw the Western countries secularize, he commented, predicted, maybe even prophesied that religion would not go away, but it would be redirected towards politics. He warned of the rise of political religions. A few weeks ago, I did a sermon on Jesus and this cultural moment, looking at how, uh, if you look at the readings of Charles Taylor and others, they've, they've shown us that we're all living in our own bubbles, or what Charles Taylor calls in his book, Secular Age, the imminent frame, where we are the king of our little bubble, and we define our morality, we define our ethics, we define our worldview, and as long as no one else pushes in and tells me I'm wrong, we're all good. You be you, I'll be me, right? That's how we live. The problem is, what happens, how do we all get along with each other? How do we live together in the same country when I'm just defining my own truth and you're defining your truth? And actually, it's intolerant of me. The golden rule is don't tell me what to do. We're living in our own truths. So how do we get along? I can't interpersonally tell you to stop it because that's actually breaking the rules of tolerance. And so the only way to get along is to actually coerce other people through someone else to actually do what I want them to do. And that someone else is politics. It's a disembodied, it's not me, I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm hoping that if I support this political party, then they will tell you what to do so that I can live my truth in a happier, healthier way. The hope of this nation then is wrapped up in our political parties. As David Brooks wrote in the New York Times, he said, over the last half century, we've turned politics from a practical way to solve common problems into a cultural arena to display our resentments with each other. Rich Viodas, who's a wonderful preacher, you should podcast him, read his books, and he took over the uh, New Life Church from Pete and Jerry Scazzaro, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I was listening to him recently, and he was saying in his church over the last two years, it's been really stressful because four different communities have emerged within the political turmoil of their church. He says community number one had been the conservatives, who he says they find very little wrong with this country, but on the other side, there are progressives who find very little right with this country. Then he said there's a third group called grateful immigrants who, no matter what they believe, they're just grateful they're here. <laughs> then he says there's a fourth group who are the apolitical and just say, can't we just stop talking about politics and just preach Jesus? As if Jesus had nothing to do with society. He said the problem is we have all attached our identity to one of those movements and therefore it's very difficult for us to coexist. He says actually psychological enmeshment has happened where I, my identity is wrapped up with my political persuasion. Where someone's identity is blended, is fused. He says when that happens, when enmeshment happens, you criticize the political party and you criticize them. And it creates a domino effect, he says. He says, for example, you critique a political leader and you critique the party of that political leader. To critique the party, 
you belong to is therefore to critique the particular values that make up that party. To critique the values that make up that party is to critique the way you read the Bible. To critique critique the way you read the Bible is to critique your conception of God, and to critique your conception of God is to critique you at your deepest center. Therefore, he said, there's no reasoning, there's no discussion. And in fact, you say one thing about a particular party and someone judges you and takes you 29 steps ahead. They leap forward. So if you criticize the Democrats, then to some, then you are a greedy capitalist and you don't care about the poor and racial injustice. But if you criticize the Republicans, you must support abortion and are a closet Marxist. He said... Either way, either tiny critique of anything accelerates people's defensiveness and they put you in a box. He said, the problem, of course, as Christians, Jesus doesn't fit into any political box. That we are to be enmeshed not in a political party, but in a person called Jesus. That Jesus is neither left nor right, nor is he centrist. And if you read the Bible... Some of the policies of the left seem to, ah, that fits with the ethics of Jesus. Some of the political party policies of the right go, huh, that fits with the ethics of Jesus. And so as Christians, we have to step out of idolatry of worshipping political parties as the hope of our nation to actually realizing that none of our political parties can bring the hope of Jesus to our nation. Only Jesus can bring the hope of Jesus to our nation. doesn't mean we disengage with politics. We had a great talk the other week about politics and the Christian. But it means we have a healthy distance from enmeshment that we can actually critique the party that we may vote for and go, yeah, man, in these ways, I believe in what they're trying to do. In these ways, they're nothing like Jesus. Because I'm not enmeshed. I'm not worshipping. I'm not a disciple of the TV station of my political party. John Mark Comer writes this. He says, followers of Jesus need to come back to the reality that baptism is the primary pledge of allegiance Contempt has zero place in the heart of those who claim to apprentice under Jesus. And the litmus test of your faith is the the degree to which you can love your enemy. Little action step for you. Tim Keller wrote a wonderful article before CPR began in the New York Times. And it was entitled this. How do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. And I think we should all read that. Again, that's not to be disengaged from politics, but it's to be disenmeshed from political parties and secular ideologies. Friends, as we move forward into this next season, we have an amazing opportunity. An opportunity to hear Jesus say, guys, I want to call you out on some things. But because it's, I want to call you into something. I want to call you into health. I want to call you into being salt and light in this new cultural moment called secularism. I want you to be on fire for me that you will display the goodness and beauty and truth of Jesus Christ. But you've got to mature. For your sake, for the sake of the lost, and for the sake of the glory of Jesus in our culture. 
There is no better gift and there's no better need for our country right now than a Christ-like church. And some things today are hard, right? I don't like being called out. And none of this is me calling you out. It's Jesus calling us out. But when Jesus rebuked Peter, it was the best thing for Peter. And I've got to let my king rebuke me out of love, out of care, that we step into who we're called to be, who we are made to be, and the people we long to be. So as we worship now, let's dedicate our lives to Jesus again. Say, Jesus, grow me. I'm sorry for the things I've done when I think I may have rebuked you, but grow me. Mature me. Transform me for your glory. Let's stand together.